fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino. John Copenhaver and our nerd Why is this 0.5 FM Los Angeles? 102.3 FM Riverside and 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. We've got Mr. John Copenhaver here today. Hey, Al. How you doing? I'm doing okay. I feel like I've been beat up, of course, because I had the uh, the duo, the COVID and the flu shot. Yeah, well, I it knocked my husband flat, that duo. I have not done it myself. I'm a little scared, too. I kind of spaced them out a bit. But, you know, each some people, it doesn't bother at all. So who knows? Yeah, no, I just feel like I've been beat up. That's all, you know. You know how it is. You get my age and things <laughs> start getting rough. You know, can't win. Can't win. Well, now today we have um, uh, an editor and a writer. Um, I think he's mainly been doing editing, and he's a friend of yours, so we uh, brought him on the show. So let's get him in. we got Mr. Josh Pachter. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. How good to see you. Well, not see you, but hear you and John, you as well. Yeah, you wouldn't want to see me. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, happiness is a warm gun. That's a crime fiction inspired by the songs of the Beatles. So it's an anthology. How do you um, yourself decide kind of how you're going to put something like this together? Like what, what's the, do you have the idea of songs of the Beatles and you think you, you, you want to get into stories centered around that and then you look for people or do you read a story? Where does, where does it start? Well, this is the fifth one of these anthologies uh, that I've done. And um, the, the first one was uh, Joni Mitchell, and then Jimmy Buffett. After that, Billy Joel. Uh, and then for a change of pace, I did Inspired by the Films of the March Brothers, uh, and then went back to music and did Paul Simon, now the Beatles. Next year, uh, we're doing uh, The Grateful Dead. And then for another change of pace in 2025, we're going to do Crime Fiction Inspired by the Films of Stephen Sondheim. And I'll tell you where it all began was, do you remember, did you grow up, Al, uh, watching Sesame Street? Um, a little bit, yeah. I, I was born in the early 60s, so I saw it, saw it for a few years. Well, you know, you might remember that Sesame Street, they would say, this episode is brought to you by the letter L or whatever it was. <laughs> uh, and, and this whole series of anthologies that I'm doing really was brought to you by the letter K. Uh, a few years ago, I uh, woke up early on the morning of my birthday, and uh, my wife was still sleeping. I didn't want to wake her up, so I went into my office and just sat down at my desk. And for once, I just had nothing to do. There was nothing I was working on. So uh, just for something to do while my wife slept, I took my bibliography of my publications. I'm a, a short story writer, uh, and I've written about 100 short stories that have been published. Uh, and I have a chronological bibliography on my website, but I decided I would create an alphabetical bibliography. So I did that and uh, realized as I was doing it that I have written short stories whose titles begin with 20 of the 26 letters of the alphabet. 
And I thought, well, here's a thing to do. I'm going to write six new stories and use up the other six letters, so I will have done the whole alphabet. The goofy thought on my birthday. And uh, alphabetically, the first letter I hadn't done was the letter K. So I'm thinking, I need a story title that begins with the letter K. And I thought, kangaroo? No. Koala? No. Kurdistan? Probably not. And then it finally hit me, kill, killer, killing. I was listening to a lot of Joni Mitchell songs at the time from the middle period, the 80s. I guess it's for Joni more the late period. Um, there's a song that she did on an album called Chalkmark in a Rainstorm. Uh, the song is called The Beat of Black Wings, and the lyric says there was a young soldier. His name was Killer Kyle. And I thought, I'm going to write a story about Joni Mitchell's Killer Kyle. So I wrote this story, and it was just really dark. Uh, my stuff is usually a lot lighter than this story turned out. And I, I normally sell my fiction to Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine. This story was way too dark for them. And I thought, what am I going to do with it? I liked the story, but I had no place to market it. And right around that time, I found out that a couple of anthologies inspired by singer-songwriters' lyrics had come out. Somebody had done uh, crime fiction inspired by the songs of Johnny Cash, and someone, I think actually it might have been the same guy, did uh, Bruce Springsteen. And I thought, I've got an idea for a market for my Killer Kyle story. I will edit an anthology of stories inspired by the songs of Joni Mitchell, and then I'll buy my own story to put in the book. So um, I did. I approached a lot of writers I've come to know over the years. Everybody was enthusiastic. Uh, I let each writer pick an album, the one uh, caveat was that I wanted all the albums to be covered and no more than two authors per album. So I wound up with uh, 26 short stories, um, one or two each from all of Joni's studio albums. Uh, and I decided that um, I wanted all the stories' uh, titles to match the title of the song that inspired them, which meant I couldn't call my story Killer Kyle because the song was called the Beat of Black Wings, which also wound up being the title of the book. So I did get the story published, but I still didn't have a K story. Uh, P.S., I eventually did write one, and I also wrote stories for the other five letters. So I've now done the whole alphabet. <laughs> but that's where the whole project started. And uh, it was fun to work on. The authors were enthusiastic. It got good reviews. The book was a finalist for the Anthony Award that's given out annually at the BoucherCon Crime Fiction Convention. I didn't win, but it was a finalist, which was a nice honor. Uh, and the publisher asked me if I wanted to do some more. So I thought, well, you know, let's let's go to another singer-songwriter whose work I admire, and that was Jimmy Buffett, and it's just kind of snowballed from there. Right. So do you ever get two writers that want to do the same song? Yeah, that happens pretty often. Um, and uh, it's the way I work is I don't do open-call anthologies. It's too much work. Uh, you do an open call, and you might get 300 submissions. Uh, I recently retired from a career in education, so I have more time now than I used to have. But until my retirement, I just didn't have time for open calls. So I'll invite people to submit to uh, to my projects. And uh, as people say yes, I let them first come, first serve, pick an album to work from. After Joni, um, I've restricted it to only one story per album, or in the case of Stephen Sondheim, one story per uh, Broadway show. But I will have people who will say, yeah, I'd love to do this particular album work, or for Sondheim, this show, and somebody else has already claimed it. 
So either they have to pick something else that's still available, or, or we just have to put them on hold maybe for a future project. You're primarily an editor, or I shouldn't say primarily, but that's what you do a lot of. You're editing a lot of people's works. So so, so tell us, who who's really a bad writer? <laughs> that's a great who, who do you have and to really spend a lot of time on, besides John? You know, the problem, what? actually, John, John is a pleasure. John, um, John did a story for my... Beatles book coming out next week. I had actually invited John a couple times previously, and our musical tastes didn't match up. Uh, but when I asked him about the Beatles, he was enthusiastic and wrote a very nice story uh, inspired by Eleanor Rigby. And then he is also uh, in the um, table of contents for the Sondheim book. Yeah. But, yeah, the problem with, with crime writers is that uh, if I was to answer your question, Al, and tell you who the bad writers are, most of them would probably <laughs> kill me. <laughs> And, and it, I, I don't think my wife would ever forgive me if I got myself killed. So I think I'm going to pass on that question. Oh, geez. I was looking for some names here. We can get them on the other line here and start a fight. <laughs> there have been, now I will not mention names, but there have been a small number of writers who I've invited to contribute to my projects and who have agreed to do that, but who for various different reasons, I wound up just not using their stories. Uh, and it was not often because the story wasn't good. Uh, it's very rare that I get a story that just isn't good. I probably would get lots of them if I did open calls, but I don't. Uh, but more often, it's because the story just turns out not to be a crime story, or it's not even remotely clear that it was inspired by the song that supposedly inspired it. Uh, I had one case, um, uh, an author whose name I think you would recognize if I mentioned it, so I won't, who... Uh, was going to do a story for one of the anthologies, and I, I have a length restriction. I don't want stories longer than 6,000 words because uh, then I'd have to have fewer stories in the book, and I like to have more authors taking part. But so I asked this particular author for a uh, 6,000, up to 6,000-word story, and the author sent me one that was 12,000 words long. Oh. And I... Uh, went back to that author and said, you know, uh, 12,000 is actually more than 6,000, and what I asked you for was no more than 6,000. <laughs> so the author agreed to cut it down and sent me a new version that was only 9,000 words long. And I said, no, still, that's that's 50% longer than I can use. Uh, can you cut it down any further? And the author said no, and we parted ways. I will tell you, without mentioning the person's name, that the author then did sell the story to a market that paid her much more for it than I would have been able to pay her. Uh, so happy ending for her, and I found somebody else to cover that particular project. Uh, so it was happy ending for, for everybody. I'm oh, sorry, we have her on the line right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I caught myself using a gendered pronoun there. I had been so careful to avoid that up until, <laughs> up, up until that one giveaway her. But, but there's at least 15 or 20 different her crime writers out there. So yeah, we haven't narrowed it down all the way. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to get it out of you, Josh. Uh, One of the things that I'm really curious about, you know, and you sort of alluded to it a little bit, but you, you do have, I mean, you get all these different writers uh, coming together, and I'm sure just a real array of sensibilities. I mean, although we're all writing crime stories and we all are sort of um, circling this, like, you know, uh, a song that we've chosen. Um, I, how do you sort or shape the collection? Or is it, you just kind of let it fall? Or, I mean, is that ever difficult? It's always difficult. Um, 
but it's so far at least never been impossible. Um, I, I have a couple of different parameters that that uh, rustle around in my head that I use as I'm trying to decide who to invite for a particular project. Uh, one thing that I'm always thinking about uh, is um, geography. So that, for example, when I did the Paul Simon book, I wanted to have as many as possible writers from New York, which is where Paul is from. When I did the Buffett anthology, I wanted writers from uh, Florida, the Grateful Dead anthology from uh, the Bay Area of California, the Beatles anthology, as many British writers as I could find. So that's important to me. But also important is diversity. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of people who are out there writing crime fiction and who, like me, are uh, misgendered, heterosexual, older, white guys. Uh, and I'm not going to do a book that's 100% populated by writers like me. So I'm always looking to get uh, equal representation for women. I'm always looking for uh, people of color to contribute to my books, uh, members of the LGBTQIA plus community. Uh, I always want in my books, I try to strike as, as balanced a table of contents as, uh, as I can. And then I'm also always looking in every book for at least one, sometimes more than one, person who either is early in their writing career to give them a bit of a boost or even somebody who has not previously published fiction at all. Um, Al, you said a little while ago that I'm primarily an editor. That's not how I would label myself. Um, I would, I would uh, label myself, at least in terms of my career in publishing, primarily a writer uh, who has also done a, a fair amount of editing, and I also do quite a bit of translation from several different languages. Um, but when I was first starting out, uh, I mentioned, I think before we, we, we started taping, that uh, my first short story appeared in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine in 1968. Uh, I was 16 years old at the time, and um, the magazine had then and still has today a special section called the Department of First Stories where what they do is they give an opportunity to be published in the middle of a magazine surrounded by professional crime writers to someone who isn't one. Uh, and I've never forgotten that they got me started by giving me that opportunity. So I like to do the same thing. I like to bring in one or a couple of people for whom this will be uh, their first ever uh, fiction publication. Um, a, a, a current example in the Beatles book is that uh, I've got a story inspired by uh, the Beatles song Ticket to Ride that was written collaboratively by two very popular crime fiction bloggers, Christopher Zagorski and Drew Ann Love. Chris does uh, Bolo Books and Drew Ann does Drew's Book Musings. Uh, and they both write about crime fiction, but they don't write crime fiction. Well, I approached them and asked them, first of all, would they be interested in trying their hand at writing a crime story? And second of all, would they be interested in writing one together? And they were excited about that, but didn't really know how to go about it. So I uh, worked with them in, I guess, kind of a mentoring relationship. And we managed uh, to to wind up with, and uh, I say we managed to wind up with, but it was certainly 99% their work with just a, some guidance from me. Uh, we wound up with a story that I think really holds its own uh, alongside the stories by professionals like John and others. Um, so there's a bunch of different parameters that kick around in my head as I put these things together. Geography, diversity, 
and opportunity are the probably the three main ones. And then I guess if I was going to add one fourth thing to that, I would say that, that uh, and this is almost by default, is that if there's somebody who doesn't like um, – uh, doesn't like the Beatles, it would be kind of silly to ask them to write a story inspired by the Beatles. <laughs> so it's got to be somebody who, who likes the music. Although I can tell you, uh, and this time I will mention a name, and I don't think she will mind. Um, when I did the Marx Brothers anthology, Monkey Business, crime fiction inspired by the films of the Marx Brothers, I wanted all the stories to be funny. So I approached people who I knew could write funny, and, and one of the folks out there now who really does write very funny and He's won all kinds of awards for her crime fiction, is Barb Goffman. Uh, and I approached Barb and invited her. Uh, and she wrote me back and said, but she, she hates the Marx Brothers. And I said, well, <laughs> in, in that case, uh, it's not very well known, but uh, the Marx Brothers' very first movie was a silent film that was never actually released. It was called Humor Risk, and it is one of the holy grails for film historians. It does not exist. So I said, why not write a story about a hunt for an apparently discovered print of the Marx Brothers' first film? You don't have to like the Marx Brothers to write that story. So she did. She did a really nice job. And when the book finally came out, she contacted me and said, you know what? I was thinking of the Three Stooges. That's who I hate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> well. Close. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the, re the result of it was that I got a very lovely, very funny story uh, inspired by a missing Marx Brothers film out of Barb Kaufman. I was very happy to have it in the book. So when you're doing that, but like when you have these stories and these crime stories, there's a lot of different crime writers out there. You've known this for years. You've worked with them. You've read them. Um, you've written them. There's all sorts of ground to cover. How, what kind of a frame do you put on, like crime? Is it you know? Is it no roar? Is it real violent? Is it like do you put sort of lines on on what the author can do in in one of these books? I don't. Um, crime fiction, as you're saying, how it's a very broad umbrella, uh, and in the same way that I like to see a diversity of authors, I like to see a diversity of approaches. Uh, so as long as it's a story that's about a crime, whether the crime actually got committed or not, uh, even if it was just a crime that was planned but ultimately didn't get committed, that's okay with me. Some of the stories will be noir, uh, very dark, the mean streets. Uh, some of the stories, even in books other than the Marx Brothers book, will be lighthearted and, and, and even funny. Um, there are cozy uh, uh, stories in which all the violence and sex happens off the page. It's just implied and never really graphically depicted. So I don't, I don't restrict um, the authors in that way. The one thing that I think, I, I don't ever say this because the people I invite are people I don't feel I need to say it to, but if somebody wrote a story that was jam-packed with really graphic uh, and gratuitous violence, uh, I'm pretty sure it's never happened but i'm pretty sure i would turn that story down because i think that that the people who are likely to read these books uh would be turned off by it and i don't do the books to turn people off i do them to turn people on uh, and that turning them on works in two different ways both of which i think are uh, important pardon me one is that um, I'll get, say, for example, for this upcoming Beatles book, people who like crime fiction, but they're not fans of the Beatles. 
they might read this book because it's a book of crime stories and walk away from it wanting to listen to the music that inspired the songs. But then I'll also get people who don't read crime fiction, but they're Beatles fans. And they'll read the book because it's inspired by the Beatles and walk away from it, hopefully thinking, oh, crime fiction is more interesting than I thought it was. Maybe I'll read some more of it. So I see these books as, as door openers, uh, both to the music and to the art form that is crime fiction. Josh, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about you as an editor and, um, in, and of course, uh, a short story writer, but you have news, too, as well. You've written your first full-length novel, Dutch Threat. Yep. Um, um, you want to tell us a little bit about that? And I also am dying to know sort of the feeling of the shift or, I don't know, reflection on writing something longer versus, you know, a, a, a pretty long uh, and illustrious career writing short fiction. How did, how did that feel for you? Um, well, you know, John, people who uh, know me, and you're one of them, uh, often think that uh, I've got a whole lot of energy because I do a lot of different things. I teach, I write, I edit, I translate, I kayak, I bike, I travel. I stay pretty busy. But the fact of the matter is, as my wife will tell you, I'm actually really at heart pretty lazy. Uh, <laughs> and And to me, the idea of writing a novel has always seemed like way too much work. Uh, I don't know if there's an ADHD component to my psychological makeup or not, uh, but I just have never felt like I could stay focused for long enough to write something more than about 20 or 30 pages long. Uh, but some time ago, uh, I, I found myself in a, a situation where I had a lot more free time than I was used to having. And I had an idea for um, a longer work, so I sat down and I, I, I wrote Dutch Threat. Uh, it's set in Amsterdam uh, in a closed community in the heart of the city. It's called the Bahanhof. It was uh, built in the Middle Ages as a home for religious women, but not nuns. Uh, and even today, in 2023, the residents in the Bahanhof are all uh, single women living independently. Um, the community is locked up at night, and so the only way you can get in is if you're a resident or the guest of a resident. And what that means is that if a crime gets committed in that community at night, the field of possible suspects is very narrow. It really has to have been committed by somebody who has access to the community, and that's a limited number of people. Well, this is a trope in crime fiction, the closed community mystery. You know, think about the Agatha Christie stories where people are stranded on a, a deserted island and they begin to die. So, you know, it's one of the people on that deserted island is committing the murders or a house full of people that get snowed in and nobody else can get there. That's Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap. Uh, so I, I, I wrote the book, and although I know how to sell short stories, I have no idea how to sell a novel. It's just never been my thing. So I sort of put it away on my hard drive, and it sat there for a, an embarrassingly long time. And then uh, earlier this year, beginning of this year, I got an email from a small publishing company in the Midwest. Uh, uh, there's a short story writer writes for Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine named David Dean, terrific short story writer. And this publishing company, Genius Book Publishing, is doing three or four collections of David's short fiction. And they asked him if he could recommend somebody as a potential new author for that house. And David kindly recommended me. So they contacted me and asked me if I had a novel. 
and this is embarrassing, but I, I forgot that I did. It had been <laughs> it had been long enough since I had worked on it that I just I forgot about it. So I said, no, I don't, but I do have a translation of a novel by a terrific Dutch writer that's looking for a home. Would would you like to see that? And they they were interested. So uh, I gave them that translation, and they liked it. In fact, they published it in April of this year. It's called The Amsterdam Lawyer, and the author's name is René Oppel. Uh, he's one of the great contemporary Dutch crime fiction writers. He's known as the godfather of the Dutch psychological suspense novel. So we signed contracts, and they began the production process for putting out René's book. And at some point along the way, I remembered, oh, wait a minute, I actually did write a novel. So I, I contacted them again, and I said, if you're still interested, I, I, I actually do have a book. So I sent it to them, and that was Dutch Threat, and they liked it, and it came out last month. And my plan is now that uh, I, I figure I should probably write a novel every 55 years. <laughs> do, you want, do you want to write another novel, oh, seriously? God, or God no. Like, God no. <laughs> no, actually, I've been getting... Um, emails from uh, people, some of them people I know, some of them people who just found me online, and uh, I have a website that has an email address on the homepage uh, saying, hey, I read your book, and I, I want to know what happens to these characters next. Is there going to be a sequel? And, oh, I hope there isn't going to be a sequel. It's too much work. Um, <laughs> yeah. Although, oddly enough, I do have uh, a novel coming out in February uh, it's a similar story. It's a book I wrote a long time ago and forgot about, and uh, it's for kids. It's for um, for probably, I would say, 9 to 14 or 15-year-olds. Uh, and uh, my, bro my niece, Allie, my brother's daughter, when she was a little girl, said to me one day, Uncle Josh, how come you only ever write um, fiction for grown-ups? Why have you never written anything for kids? Uh, and I opened my mouth to give her a typical grown-up BS answer. I don't know if I'm allowed to say what the letters BS stand for uh, on your air, but, but you know what I mean. I opened my mouth to give her a typical grown-up answer, and I thought, why am I BSing my own niece? I don't need to do that. So I told her the truth. I said, I, I guess I just never thought about it before. And little Allie, who was probably eight or nine years old, looked up at me and said, well, I bet you're thinking about it now. <laughs> and, and, Damn it! Yes, I, 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 <laughs> Come on, write it. Yeah. So I sat down and I wrote a. I sat down and I wrote a chapter book mystery for younger readers. Um, and then uh, a couple months or so ago, uh, I heard that uh, my friends at Level Best Books, uh, Sean Riley Simmons and Verena Rose, uh, had started a new line of books for younger readers called Level Elevate. So I contacted them and said, hey, I have a book. Would you like to look at it? Uh, and they, they are publishing it on February the 24th. Um, it's, called, it's got a weird name. It's called First Week Free at the Roomy Toilet. <laughs> and I think that name probably makes it sound like it's for six-year-olds. <laughs> but in, in fact, what that book is about is it's about a 14-year-old girl. It's told in the first person from her point of view. And she is... Uh, the spoke kid for a brand of dog food, Yummy Nibbles, the dog food dogs love more than people love people food. But she has higher ambitions. She wants to be in the real movies. And her agent comes up with a scheme to get her some national publicity that hopefully will attract Hollywood's attention. Uh, so she fakes 
declaring emancipation from her parents and goes off to live on her own. And as she's looking for a place to live, uh, she sees an old Victorian house that has a sign out front that says room to let on it. But neighborhood kids have graffitied that sign, and they've changed it from room to let into roomy toilet. <laughs> well, by now, this 14-year-old girl has been walking around town trying to find a place to live long enough that she has to pee. So she goes up, knocks on the door, and asks if she can use the roomy toilet and winds up moving into an open room in the, what turns out to be a boarding house. Uh, and mysterious things begin to happen. Uh, and then by the end of the book, almost everybody has a happy ending, but not quite everyone. <laughs> what more could you ask for? I think, you know, I'm, 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 I'm pretty happy with it. I think that uh, Dutch Threat is, a, is an acceptable crime novel. I think it's a decent book. Uh, but I think that um, I think that Rumi Toilet is really a fun, fun book. If you're familiar with Ellen Raskin's uh, The Westing Game, which I think is probably the best mystery novel ever written for kids, uh, this book has a lot of that spirit to it. It's not a ripoff of The Westing Game, but I think it's coming from a similar place. You know, with someone that's had so many years of experience in in writing, editing, and and being part of crime fiction, let's say, that this world, how is it that you create these characters? Like, it's really a great imagination to come up with something like, you know, Rumi Toilet from Room to Let and, you know, that whole graffiti thing. That, that's very creative. But how do you do the characters? Because you've probably read and edited so many characters over the years. How can you create a character that's unique? Uh, to themselves? Al, that's a fair question. And uh, over the years, I've gone to a lot of crime fiction conferences, VoucherCon, Malice Domestic, uh, others, and uh, I've been on a lot of panels. And that's a standard panel question is basically, where do your ideas come from? Uh, and I always hate being asked that question, to tell you the truth, because I haven't got a freaking idea. Right. I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, I don't think I could be one of those people who... Uh, like uh, Edith Maxwell, who writes Cozies under her own name and also as Maddie Day, right. or Donna Andrews, who writes uh, a, a wonderful series of books about a character named Meg Lengslow. Uh, Edith and, and Donna sit down every every day, and they don't take their fingers off the keyboard until they've met their daily quota of, of words. Uh, and I have enormous respect for their ability to do that. I, I couldn't do it. Um, you know, what happens is that probably more often than not, it's I'm in the shower and an idea just sort of, I don't know, pops into my head and I get out of the shower and towel off and put some clothes on and go into my office and write a story. And so I'll go through dry spells when a couple months will go by and I don't write a word, uh, but then I'll go through busy spells when a couple of weeks go by and I'll, I'll manage to write three or four stories, all of which I'm able to sell. Uh, so I, I don't know where it comes from. You know, some... I always think it's silly when writers say the stories write themselves. Yeah. I just type them down. <laughs> you know, I mean, oh, that's nonsense. The stories don't write themselves. You freaking write the stories. Yeah. Just fess up. Yeah. Well, well, your dry spells, you haven't showered, obviously. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, you got to get wet <laughs> in order to get out of a dry spell. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I don't know. Well, I don't think I know. I think, think I'm, I'm focusing on that. I'm focusing on more 
there's so many like yeah we write these stories and we don't know where they come from in in essence they come out of us somewhere and for some reason it it's triggered like you in the shower and whatever the scenario is um but what i'm thinking is how do you make it so that you've heard so many variations of characters is what i'm saying so for instance your grad student jack farmer but how do you not fall into the the standard is is more what I'm saying. Like you're sitting there and you're writing it. How do you not, like, do you have some sort of a dinger that goes off or something when you, <laughs> when you start getting into, into this Jack Farmer and you start all of a sudden it's, you don't want to be trope. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And again, I, I wish I had a better answer than I have. I, I think in the same way that, that, that plots just suddenly appear, uh, characters do pretty much the same thing for me. Uh, I have written several series of stories where it's the same character or small group of characters over and over again. And so over time, you come to know those characters better and better, and it's easier to, to write about them as you learn more about them. Um, but most of my stories are one-off, and um, I... I, I I don't have a good answer, just in the same way that the idea for the story just sort of pops up, the characters pop up. Um, I, the one thing that I do once I've written a story that I think helps the characters to be individuals and believable, and I, I, I think everybody really, uh, well, I don't want to say everybody should do this because everybody has their own, to use the cliched term, process. But for me, I read everything out loud. Uh, and I listen to the way that it sounds, especially the dialogue. Can I imagine that a real person would ever actually say those words? Um, I find that where fiction that I don't like is weakest is when the people don't talk like real people and don't behave like real people. And reading it aloud helps me to see whether or not it's realistic enough. Um, but I haven't, I, I, that I'm aware of at least, nobody to my face has said, boy, your characters are all the same. Uh, so I think I've somehow managed to avoid falling into cliched character categories and, and create people who are different in each story. I hope I do. No, they just say it behind your back. <laughs> I don't blame them. <laughs> no, I say enough things behind their backs. <laughs> we got them on the line, too, now. No. <laughs> uh, it's Well, it doesn't really matter. You, you're focusing on what you do anyway. It doesn't matter what people think or say in essence right you're you're you it's more about the work isn't it i think so uh you know i think it was richard bradigan the poet who once wrote it's steam engines when it comes steam engineering time uh and i think that's that sort of sums up how i write you know it, it writes when it comes writing time that's interesting i mean i, I it, it when you were earlier you were sort of talking about um the dry spell and I admit things that sort of popped in my head or like, does that mean, cause it means different things to different people. When you say dry spell, some people are like, I'm out of ideas. And some people are like, well, I just haven't had, I haven't put those ideas down. You know, there's like the, the flow of inspiration and then there's the actual flow of the words to the page. Do you think there's a difference for you or do you think those are kind of tied up in the same? Um, I, I'm not sure, John. I, I, um, I, there have been some times when I've consciously chosen not to focus on writing. Right. Uh, there was a period of several years back in the, um, in the, the late 
70s, early 80s, when I got mad at Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. <laughs> uh, and, and, um, and because I was mad at them, I said, well, I'm just not going to do this anymore. Uh, and that lasted for actually for a couple of years until I found myself uh, teaching in the Middle East for a year. I was in the island emirate of Bahrain for a year. And Bahrain is a fascinating country where there's very little to do because it's really small. The whole country is only five miles wide by 10 miles top to bottom. And half of that is military terrain and off limits. So uh, I actually found myself kind of bored hanging out in Bahrain and thought, well, I'll write a story set in Bahrain. That wound up being the first in what turned out to be a series of a dozen stories about a, a Bahraini police officer. But uh, for the couple of years before I created that character and started writing those stories, I just was being stubborn and, and, and mad at Ellery Queens, and that's why <laughs> nothing came out for, for a while. Lately, recent years, uh, especially since I retired about a year ago, uh, I've been writing a lot more. Uh, I'm, I'm probably this year averaging maybe a little bit more than a story a month, which for me is, is, is a lot. Now, for a guy like Michael Bracken or John Floyd, each of whom has published over a thousand short stories, wow. you know, in the, the month that it takes me to write one, Michael has written eight, John has written 15. Uh, but, but, uh, um, I, I think most of the people who I've talked to, most of the writers who I've talked to, uh, seem to feel that, that writing a story a month is a lot. And to me, it, it seems to like a lot compared to what I've historically done, but uh, doesn't hold a candle to folks like Michael and John. They are the, uh, the, the, the powerhouses of short crime fiction, at least uh, these days. But I'll tell you, as far as inspiration goes, you use that word, John. Yeah. Um, most of my short fiction begins uh, with a title. And I don't think I've ever met anybody else who, who starts that way. People begin with a, a, a plot idea or people begin with a character they want to write about or a setting they want to put a story in. Uh, but I will read or hear a phrase that catches my attention. And I'll think, okay, that's a title for a short story. Now I just need characters, a setting, and a plot. And, uh, and, and I would say that's probably where 90 or more percent of my stories come from. So with these inspired by anthologies, that makes my job really easy because the title is a given. You know, I'm going to pick a song from an album and use that as the title of the story. Uh, but sometimes they come from really strange places. Uh, my wife and I were um, vacationing a couple years ago in Edisto Island in South Carolina, and we went for a walk in Edisto Island State Park and saw um, an informational sign about something called the bar of invariable length, which was a measuring tool used to measure the South Carolina coastline uh, about a hundred or so years ago. And I just saw that phrase, the bar of invariable length, and I thought that's just such a lovely phrase. Uh, and so I wound up writing a story called Last Call at the Bar of Invariable Length. Uh, recently, my wife spotted an article in a magazine that she was reading about um, the three laws of plumbing. <laughs> and I thought, I thought the first law of plumbing, that's a story title. And I, I, that story was published a couple months ago in Mystery Magazine. So that's, that's often the inspiration for me, is just a phrase that catches my attention and winds up uh, leading me into a new world.
Yeah, I think you have to train yourself, though. You may have done it because you've been writing so long, but I, you know, as you know, I'm a teacher, and I will have students regularly ask me, or, you know, can you please teach us how to be inspired, essentially? <laughs> and I'm always a little, my mouth kind of falls open, and I don't, I try to conceal. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm not I mean, a lot of questions kind of go through my head. One is like, maybe you shouldn't be a writer if you're, if <laughs> you can't find inspiration. But then I think, well, maybe they're just sort of stuck. Um, and there is sort of, there are probably methods to unhook and, and release or, or find ways to be inspired. Um, you know, so I, but I'm, I, I feel like it's the sort of, uh, as an instructor, uh, uh, something that I probably need to do more with. I just personally, as a right, inspiration is not the problem um, for me. The problem for me is, you know, uh, finding time to a certain degree, sometimes confidence when you're like staring at the, uh, the blank page. But, you know, I, I know I, in my head what I want to write. And it's, you know, I have about 10 novels backed up, you know. Um, wow. Yeah. So it's Can like, I have two or three of them, John? No. <laughs> <laughs> Take them, they're yours. Go for it. No, I don't. Actually, I don't want them because then I'd have to write two or three right, novels. You, won't, you don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that. No. Maybe you've had a I, short I can't story remember who the writer was. John or Al, maybe you might remember, but there was a writer, might have been Mickey Splane, but I'm not sure about that, um, who was asked, you know, how do you do this? How do you, how do you be a writer? And whoever it was said, oh, it's really easy. You just sit down at a keyboard and open a vein. <laughs> and that that has now become kind of our, I mean people kind of say that chuckling all right they chuckle <laughs> but I think there's a certain amount of truth to that you know I suppose there are people like the Edith uh, uh, Maxwells and the Donna Andrews's who can sit down and make themselves do it um, but uh, there are also people like me who you know we we do it when it comes doing it time yeah yeah there's a difference you know, and Edith has been on the show, and she seems thrilled with doing it. Oh, yeah. There's nothing she likes better. Yeah. Oh, well, that's not true. She likes spending time with her husband and her kids better. But other than that, there's nothing she likes better than sitting down at that keyboard. Donna is not married. I think there's nothing she likes better than sitting <laughs> down at that keyboard and creating a story. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, thank goodness, because they have devoted fans uh, who uh, will buy every single book they write. Uh, and who, they're making those fans happy by virtue of their ability and their their desire to sit down and just continue to create day after day. So, Josh, where do you like to be found? Are you doing social media? Do you have a website? Do you, you know, um, bars, cocktail lounges? <laughs> where, where's the best place to interact with Josh? Uh, you know, the... I do Facebook. Uh, and uh, I don't have a separate author page. I just have one page under my name, Josh Pachter. Uh, it's the only social media I use. I think I have an Instagram account, but I don't ever use it. Uh, and if there are other social media platforms, I don't even think I know what they are. Uh, but I'm, I'm usually on, on uh, Facebook most days. I do have a website. It's very bare bones, uh, probably about 15 or so years ago, I took a um, two-day class called How to Build a Website in a Weekend. Uh, and sure enough, at the end of the two days, I went home and I built a website. And it, it's very bare bones, uh, but it's functional. It does what I, I want it to do, which is give me a place to um, 
to to have my bibliographies, both uh, chronological and alphabetical. And for each book and each story, there's a corresponding page where you can get some back uh, stories and some background information on the work. Uh, so people can find me there. It's just www.joshpactor.com. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, there is an email link uh, on the homepage so people can write me. And I do get emails from readers and from other writers. Um, and then uh, as far as bars go, uh, <laughs> when, I, uh, when I, I lived up in northern Virginia for 10 years, I moved down to Richmond three years ago, three and a half years ago, um, right at the beginning of COVID. When I was in northern Virginia, I hosted uh, an event called Noir at the Bar a couple of times a year where I'd, I'd bring half a dozen writers together, always crime writers, uh, and give them the opportunity to read from their work. Uh, I think, John, you, you did one of those up in, in uh, Buzz Boys and Poets in northern Virginia, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then um, when I moved down here to, um, to the Richmond area, my wife and I live about two minutes from the Swift Creek Reservoir. And there's a beautiful uh, restaurant right on the water called The Boathouse. And I thought, Noir at the Bar, but there's this restaurant right on the reservoir. What about Noir at the Bar? <laughs> uh, and I, I had to wait until COVID eased up enough to make going out in public again possible. But for about the last, oh, I think maybe a year and a half, uh, I've been doing a quarterly Noir at the Voir event. And, John, you've also come down and read for that. Yeah, I did. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, of course, you didn't have to come down at that point because you now live in the Richmond area yeah, as well. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I was living there then. Yeah, right. Uh, and so that that's a lot of fun. Uh, the only problem with it is that uh, it's getting to the point where I'm sort of running out of writers to come and read. I don't want to just recycle the same people over and over and over again. So we're, we're getting ready to switch it from a quarterly event to a twice-a-year event. But the next one will be on uh, November the 14th, which is a Tuesday uh, evening. And the event runs from 6.30 to 9.30. It's free, uh, no reservation needed or possible. First come, first seated. Uh, If you just kind of uh, do a Google Maps search on the boathouse at Sunday Park in Midlothian, Virginia, you'll get the directions. Uh, And uh, we'd love to have people come out and uh, uh, have some dinner, have a drink listen to some uh, usually really entertaining uh, short crime fiction. So people can also find me there at the Noir at the Noir. And we'll have all of that up on our website so people can find it with one click, along with your newest books, Dutch Threat and Happiness is a Warm Gun. Again, Josh Pachter, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, Al and John. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.